All right, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to the Chasing Better podcast. Uh, this is Corey Baker, and if you're new to the podcast, this is a uh, opportunity. We call it Chasing Better, and I, I really just desire to help add some value to you to assist you to truly be the best version of yourself. And today, uh, this is a uh, this is a treat for me. Uh, the last couple of weeks, um, all of my podcasts have been just me talking to you. And uh, I thought it'd be a cool opportunity to use this as an opportunity to bring someone else on. And I thought, man, what better chance to bring someone on because I'm incredibly narcissistic um, than to bring someone on with my my own name, right? So not only the right name, but the right spelling of the name. I hate when people forget the E on Corey. Uh, So this is uh, Corey Leak, and I'm going to ask him to introduce himself in just a minute. Uh, but Corey and I have some similar backgrounds in the fact that we both grew up in a little bitty, well, not little, but uh, a place in the Midwest called Rockford, Illinois. Uh, grew up as a as a part of the same uh, church. Um, but uh, I, I really, you know, we live in a world, and I don't think that it's going to take me a lot of time to uh, try to convince people that we live in a world that's fairly broken and that's pretty divided. And I feel like we have a, an opportunity to say, hey, we can just accept it for what it is, or we can say, hey, we can really honestly change this thing. So uh, for those of you, I mean, those of you that are listening to this, um, Corey's a friend. Corey has been someone that I followed and respected for a while, and honestly has been someone that's challenged me in, in the way that I think. And I want to have a discussion about um, race. Uh, Corey is uh, an African-American man that uh, has lived a life that... I have not. And I thought, man, what a cool opportunity just to have a, a discussion about um, about race. And so, Corey, thanks so much for jumping on with me today and, and for having this discussion. And I think this is going to be a fun few minutes. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk to you. Um, it's, it's cool to me to see that you are expanding with the book and now the podcast and that you're having important conversations. I think I think this is cool. I think more and more people having these types of conversations, uh, I say all the time on my podcast that we are contending for a better world one conversation at a time. And I do think that uh, having these kind of talks makes the world better, even if it's in small incremental ways or just within our own communities or um, platforms. But I do think it's, I think it makes the world better to have these kind of talks. So maybe just give people, and we'll get into it here in a few minutes, but Maybe just give people a little bit of context in terms of your um, your background and where you uh, where you are, where you live. Maybe a little about your family, what it is that you do, kind of the space that you're currently in. You mentioned a podcast. I know you have a, a blog that's that's very uh, very good as well. Uh, and then maybe a little bit into kind of something that has become really a passion for you in terms of uh, social justice. Um, and just the ability of um, uh, really awareness in terms of the the challenges that uh, people of color, minorities may face in our country that um, maybe people like me just aren't aware of. So maybe just take a few minutes and kind of bring us up to speed with where you are, what you do now, and just why this is such a passion area for you. Oh, man, that is... Uh a very, very long story that I'm going to condense for the purpose of this being a 30 minute podcast, not six hours. Um, but you know, being that I, 
I grew up as a black man, that really is a significant part of the story, right? Because when you grow up in black communities, there is a way of thinking and being and talking. And uh, there's just a, there's an environment that you are always talking about race in some way, shape or form at the barbershop, at church, in your home. Um, I remember growing up with this sort of idea within the ethos of the black community that was we were going to have to work twice as hard to be respected um, half as much as our white brothers and sisters who were working in you know at school or at, at jobs or in college so we just kind of grew up with this sort of underdog mentality as, as in, in the black community and some in the black community were more um, resentful towards white folks and others um, were you know more hopeful and I sort of lived in between those two spaces. I mean, I, I'm, I'm an, I was born in 78. So in, in the 80s, um, it was a time where we were just 30 years removed from Dr. King being assassinated. So many of the people who were alive, and even today, it's still the case, that many of the people who were alive for Dr. King's assassination, assassination are still alive today. Uh, and so depending on what your vantage point was or how you sort of like saw that moment, it affected how you viewed America. And so I grew up in, in, in that kind of a space. And um, so from there, I'm going to fast forward, skip a bunch of details and get to about two years ago where I was working at a fairly large evangelical church. Um, and I'll, I'll say it's a white evangelical church because it's, it's leadership is primarily white. Right. Um, and, and so I was working for this church up until about two years ago when they called me into the office and said, we need to have a tough conversation. Um, and that tough conversation was basically, it's not working. My job at that, at that particular church was overseeing the way, in a nutshell, the way that church communicated who they were on the weekend and during the week through their social media and um, websites. Okay. So I oversaw the worship, I oversaw the, the comm department, I oversaw the production department, and I had a heavy hand in uh, the sermons, at least the, the, the planning of the sermons. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, you know, once I became a person who was more vocal about issues of race and, and not just issues of race, but a lot of the, the things that were happening in public discourse, whether it was about gender or uh, human sexuality, a lot of those conversations were very uncomfortable sure. for the evangelical church. So my, my social media started leaning into those conversations. And I think it made them uncomfortable, and I think that led to the tough conversation that we had almost two years ago, which sort of put me in a space where I was like, okay, well, I kind of like tough conversations. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I think they're needed. I think that people in religious spaces shouldn't avoid them. You know, and, and I started to see that there were a lot of clergy, Christians, a lot of um, you know non-Christian religions, Buddhists, Hindu, Muslims that were engaged in the work of, of social justice. And I was like, why is it that these people feel so uh, emboldened and energized to involve themselves in messy conversations that like Christians tend to shy away from? What's giving them the boldness to do so? And, and I, as I got to know some of them and as I do my own reading, I went, oh, it's because all of religion has a belief that 
there is a just way of treating other people. Sure. And there's an unjust way of treating other people. Like a right, and right and wrong, people, black and white. Exactly. There's yeah. a black and white. Yeah. Yes, there is a there is a. Um, this is a kind gesture towards a human being, and this is an right. unkind gesture towards a human being. And when when a when a structure or a um, people in power begin to treat a certain group of people unkindly or unjustly, it becomes the moral responsibility of every human being to condemn that action, to stand for those people who are being oppressed, who are being um, trampled on, who are who are being pushed aside by society. And so, long story short, I started feeling like, you know what, my moral obligation, especially as a person who professes a faith, mm-hmm. and a faith in, in a God and in a Jesus who was very much talking about standing up for the oppressed, how could I be a person who professes that faith and not say something when something needs to be said? Yeah. And that's, that's really great. I think that gives us a whole lot of context of, of where to even begin with this. And I will, I'll tell you this. Um, I would say, and we were talking a little bit beforehand about this, this concept, but I, one thing that I've come to understand is that if you look at our culture, uh, I, I don't think that we as people, and I'll just say Americans, we don't do empathy well as a, as a rule, right? Empathy, this idea of understanding where someone else comes from. Um, I am a white male with an evangelical background. Um, and you could probably make the, make the case that me as a white male middle class growing up and now into a place of definitely into a 1% white male. I I have known a life of privilege that few do. Well, um I should say those that are not white males. I mean, you could look at it and females know what it's like to be discriminated against. We have females that earn less in the workplace and are discriminated are discriminated against because of what they look like or vice versa, what their weight is. Yeah. Uh, Af- uh, minorities know what it's like to be discriminated against. And I'm sure that, you know, there's white males that are listening to this and say, yeah, you know, well, I, I've been discriminated against. Okay, but the vast majority of white males in our culture do not know what it's like to be discriminated against. So that being said, um, especially in the church space, um, I know that as I'm talking to you, I can't necessarily apologize to you on behalf of an entire race or group of people that think differently. However, I want to say that for me, I'm sorry that it's taken me so long to even get into a place of having a discussion about something like this. And the reason why is I've always grown up in this place of just kind of thinking, well, everybody has the same opportunities. If you want to make something of yourself, then you can make something of yourself. And you can. However, the in our culture, the odds of me being more successful then someone who's a minority are much greater yeah, because of the privilege that I have. Now, yeah. can you 
be incredibly successful? Of course you can. But so in this place, like a lot of people that listen to me are people that are white, evangelical, and probably people that would say race isn't a big deal. Why are we talking about it so much? You know, I've heard people that say, hey, listen, the only reason this is an issue is because we're saying it's an issue. Right, right. So how do you talk to people like me a couple of years ago or people listening to this now that would say, hey, it's all in your head. Um, the reason it's an issue is because we keep talking about it. Um, what do you say to that? Well, so, well, you know, interestingly enough, um, my answer is I don't talk to people like that. Yeah, I really don't. And, and I think that I, I started off talking to folks like that. I'll give you an example. Um, I think it was probably around the time of, of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, who were two black men that were killed by police officers mm-hmm. in two different states sure. um, within 24 hours of each other. And that, that to me was kind of this catalytic event, though I had already had some real emotional attachment to what had happened with Trayvon Martin in Florida. Sure. Nothing like, I don't know what it was. It, it's not something I can manufacture, but the, the Alton Sterling Philando Castile thing just broke my heart. Like right. I woke up the next day in tears and I started talking about black lives matter to mm-hmm. white people who would say, well, all lives matter. Right. And back then I said, blue lives matter. The whole, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. All these things came out. And, right. and, I, and I said to them, I would not go to your uh, uncle's funeral and stand up in the back of his funeral and say, Hey, I know you guys are sad about your uncle, but my dad also died. Sure. His life mattered also. I would never say that. Right. So I, I, I started sort of saying that stuff and white people were starting to understand. Oh, okay, cool. I can kind of see that. And then I moved on and I progressed with the folks that were moving. You know, there's this saying that they like, they'll, they'll, they'll say to church planters that move with the movers. Mm-hmm. Right. So I started moving with people who were moving forward. So then we started talking about the construct of whiteness and the construct of race. So once you kind of move from this this racism 101 into like a, a racism 201 and, and you move on into some some more like graduate level talks about race, it can be very frustrating to go back to try to convince to someone who's way back here at a place that's like, well, I don't think we should talk about race at all. It's like it's, it's draining to have to constantly explain to someone that there is a construct in America that has established a way of being that has made the white male the center of the universe Mm -hmm. and for those that like would have this sense of that's not true then you have to answer for me i I would i'd want to hear someone explain to me what why is there such a disparity in wealth in home ownership in education and on the negative side in folks that are in prison um folks that are without jobs all of those things that like where the scoreboard says white people 8,000, black people 400, like why is the scoreboard so lopsided? Sure. So if the scoreboard is lopsided, it either means that the scoreboard has been rigged so that white people always win or black people are inferior. Mm-hmm. Now, most of the white folks that would argue that there's no such thing as white privilege would not, would, and, and when I present the data, won't say explicitly that, well, white people are just better. But implicitly, when you deny that there has to be a reason why if, 50, if, if America's 13, between 13 and 15% black, 
why is uh, why are we not represented that way throughout all sectors of business and education and government? Like that's not how that's not how we're represented throughout throughout the, these sectors. So I think that um, it's tough for me to have someone argue against white privilege or argue against the fact that it is harder for black folks than it is for white men. Um, it's hard for me to, to understand how they would come to that place. And if it's solely personal experience, I understand that. I, I, don't, I don't believe in dismissing anyone's personal experience, but I do think we have to put personal experience in proper perspective. Because I, I hear a lot of, of white folks say, well, you know, I, I grew up in this town and I was the only white person at this school and I experienced racism. And I said, well, wait a minute. Um, I hate that you experience what you experience, but let's not call it racism. What you may have experienced, you experienced hatred, you experienced people not being kind to you, you experienced marginalization, you experienced perhaps bullying, either psychologically, emotionally, or physically. But what you did not experience is racism. And here's why you didn't experience racism, because there was no established hierarchy and power structure put in place to ensure that everyone else does well and that you are always lagging behind. If, right. if America, America being what, 246 years old, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, some people say maybe older, but that's when we were established as sure. a nation. But even before that, you had slavery mm -hmm. in America. We've only had 50 to 60 years, let's say 60 years on the high end in America, where black people in this country were legally considered equal mm -hmm. to white people. Mm -hmm. So you've got 100, I'm, about, I'm not great at math, when you're talking about 180, 190 years of a head start on anyone black if you're a white male. Mm -hmm. you've, got, you've got property that can be handed down from generation to generation. Right. You have businesses that can be handed down from generation to generation. You look at even churches and past and pastoral leadership that can be handed down from generation to generation. And you've got, you have lead pastors even in, in, in positions where they're leading the church, not necessarily because, and I know I may be bothering some evangelicals when I say this, mm. not necessarily because of God's calling, but potentially because of the fact that they inherited a church where 70 years ago, black folks couldn't even attend, let alone be in leadership. Mm -hmm. So there's this head start that white folks have had, and I'm not sure how that's historically debatable, some people do debate it, and they're they're free to. But there's this head start that white folks have had that I think um, makes it impossible for us to ignore that there is there is something there is a default position of whiteness in America, and as long as we look the other way from that or try to act like it's not a thing, it's never going to be fixed because it's certainly not going to fix itself. Yeah. So you know, one of the things that you just mentioned was is pretty interesting. You know, you talk about the the percentage of African American. Um, people in our society, whether it's 12 to 15% or whatever that number is. And, you know, a person can argue whether privilege exists or whether it doesn't, but you can't argue with math, right? I mean, math is math is math. You can't, I, I can't like have a, an argument with you that two plus two is five. I mean, math is math and you can't argue uh, facts, you know I mean? So I think getting to a place of, you know, we, it's, it's dumb because I feel like there's a lot of people that are, I, my side isn't even a a, a right thing because I wouldn't put myself on any sort of side. But the the, right. the the pushback to what you just said could be, 
well, you know, well, there is no such thing as, as white privilege. I think that's a, I think that's a tough argument to make, but there are people that make that argument. Let's say that it does. Let's say that what you're saying is 100% true, that there is privilege. Um, what do you feel is the responsibility of privilege? If we can announce, if we can say that it does exist, then what, what is the responsibility of someone like me who is in a place of privilege? Obviously, the goal is we want to get to a place where privilege doesn't exist and where everybody has the same chance. We, we live in a culture where not everybody has the same chance. So until we get to that point, what's my responsibility? And people like me who are in a place of privilege, how can I use my privilege for the best things? You know, man, I, practically speaking, that's always a tough question for me to answer. There are so many different things I think that can be done. I think what we're doing right now is, is one of those things. Um, but I, lately, one of the things that I've been thinking about, I ha- and I haven't even written about this or, or talked about it on, on any of my platforms, um, but one of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately is the moral obligation that I believe every white person, but certainly every white person of faith, has to deconstruct racism. Mm-hmm. And I feel like often that moral obligation is transferred to the people who come from the traditionally oppressed people groups. It's almost like um, if the story of Moses and the Hebrew uh, slaves with the Egyptians were kind of, uh, uh, if we compared that to America, it would be like uh, Pharaoh saying, I know we've really mistreated you guys and going to the, going like Pharaoh going to the Jewish people across the Nile River and saying, how, you know, we want to make this right. What, what, what should we do? Um, instead of Pharaoh going, we broke it, we need to fix it. And I think that one of the things that's hard these days is because like you yourself, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an assumption that I think mm-hmm. is fairly sure. uh, safe to assume. You don't have slaves in the mm-hmm. backyard right now. Like there's, there's no one picking cotton in your backyard. Right no, now, I don't. Right? I, I just so, checked, but no, so, I don't. Yeah. yeah, you have to look right. So <laughs> you, you don't have slaves currently, and none of your listeners have slaves. Right. Possibly none of their parents or their grandparents. Um, so there's this sense of, well, we didn't do it. Why do we have to clean it up? And that's because largely when it comes to, and you and I coming from a similar background of evangelical faith, we grew up in an era of evangelical faith that was all about the individual, mm-hmm. which is which which sounds very Republican. We all pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps, even in our faith. We did not feel a sense of communal responsibility to our brothers and sisters outside of we were supposed to be nice to each other. We we're supposed to hold each other accountable to not like sleep around and not drink and not cuss, sure. whatever else was on that list of things you don't do so that you can be a good Christian. But there wasn't a sense of I'm responsible, like my salvation, my liberation, my wholeness, my justice is tethered to yours. It is bound together. And, and, and if you're not okay, I'm not okay. If you're not receiving justice, I'm not receiving justice. And if my if, if my ancestors mistreated your ancestors, the same as if I mistreated you, and I need to look at the, the byproducts of that. And if I have benefited in any way from the mistreatment and the injustice that your ancestors had to endure, then it's my responsibility today to get involved in solving the problem. Here's the thing, man. There are, you see these cathedrals built by white 
men mm-hmm. in churches, massive churches with like they're 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 the Disneyland of churches mm-hmm. or or any or Disneyland itself. Mm-hmm. You have all of these these incredible uh, inventions and innovations and and structures built by by white men throughout history, which tells me that there is a deep well of ingenuity, of creativity, of in- intellect, of articulation that pulled together pointed in the direction of let's deal with the issue of ongoing systemic racism in America. I fully believe that white men are capable of, of figuring that out. Mm-hmm. Like I really do. I do. What I think is that the energy is not put in that direction because like you said, there's so many people who would go, well, it's not an issue. It's not a problem. I worked hard to get mine. If they worked hard, they, they, they would, if, if black folks weren't so lazy, all these other things, like all the other explanations that there are for things like the fact that there's 37% of the prison population is black men. Now, we already talked about that 12 to 15% of the population is mm-hmm. black people. Mm-hmm. The prison population is 37% black men. So you can either believe that that is because black men are animals, mm-hmm. or you can believe that something unjust, unrighteous, and unfair is happening. And if you choose to believe the latter, then you start going, well, let me do my homework. Let me uh, have some conversations with people who are willing to talk because quite honestly, there are some black folks who are weary mm-hmm. with having conversations with white people because there are a lot of white folks that will come forward and say, man, what do I do? And much like the people who would come up to Jesus and, and they go, well, here's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Deny, your white, deny your whiteness, like lay it down, lay down that privilege of being white and take up the cause of being a person of color. Because this this word that the Bible uses about compassion is a word that means to feel in your innards the plight of someone else. Mm-hmm. In order for me to feel the plight of someone, the pain, the oppression, the, the grief of someone else, I have to be close enough. And in order for a white person to be close enough to a person of color, that usually means that I have to lay down some of my own privilege, some of my own rights, some of the things that I get a chance to be a part of in order to engage in conversation and engage in community with people who aren't like me. Yeah, And, and that it, is a very tall ask. It would seem that, you know, because I'm just, my, my personality is I'm a, I'm a fixer, right? So I'm, you know, in so many ways, it's like we could look at it and say, okay, what could we, what could we give and charity and all that kind of stuff. But it would seem to me, and correct me if I'm wrong with this, but anyway, it would seem to me that almost what you're asking is is not for charity. You you just want an equal chance, you know. Like, hey, you know, I I want I don't I don't want to be given anything as a, be, because I'm a certain race. I just want to be given a chance. I want to be given equal footing to compete or equal footing to to live in this world and and have a fair have have a fair shake. Am I am I reading that well, correctly? An equal an equal footing I think is it's it's interesting interesting you use that. I always have this this picture in my head and many of your listeners may have seen it, you may have seen it. There's this picture of these it's like th- it, there's three people standing on boxes trying to look over a fence to see a baseball game. Sure. And there is there is the, the, or they're side by side and one of one, in one of those pictures uh, everyone's standing on the same size box, but one guy's taller and the next guy than the next guy and the next guy sure. next to them is shorter. So the, the shortest guy standing on the same size box can't see over the fence. Well, in the second picture, and that, and that picture is, uh, is, is over the top of that picture is equality. Sure. So everyone has the same platform to stand on. 
The next picture is all of those same height people in the same fence, but the boxes are adjusted for the height of the person trying to see the game. And because the box, the shorter box goes to the taller guy and so on and so forth, so the shortest person can see over the fence sure. and see the game. There's another picture I like even better where there is no fence. Right? It's just there's, there's not a fence. There is just this, there's this space where every human being has the right and the opportunity to flourish. What, what's interesting also that you said that I'm wrestling with and don't have all the answers to, um, and I think that's okay. One of the other things that I think is, it, that as a sidebar, is that whenever someone starts to say to society, it doesn't have to be this way, there's another way that we can be, the, the pressure is always put on that, the person I'm making the announcement, well, to explain all the details of what it looks like. And at the end of the day, I think that's an unfair expectation to put on the person saying there is another way that we can be as a society. And, and, and instead of having people go or fold their arms and go, well, how are we going to do that? Mm-hmm. People just going, oh, let's let's imagine together what that new world looks like. Um, and I think that it's like I think that when you talk about competition or when you talk about like a, a fair chance to win. I think there's another way of living that's not so competitive. Sure. Because in a, in, a, in a way of living where there's competition, that's how you wind up with hierarchy. That's how you wind up with racism. Well, that's, that's kind of, I mean, that's with, part of the society, capitalistic society that we live in. That's, exactly that's kind of, we're products is, of that. Right? Yeah. That's right. We have to accept that that's what it is. That's yeah. what it is right now. And there's no way, there's no denying that. There's competition. When you want your podcast and your book to outdo everyone else's podcast and yeah. everyone else's book, that's how we are conditioned to live. But it doesn't have to be that sure. way. Because in competition, what happens is whoever has the advantage they win and who's historically in America who has always had the advantage. So how is it that anyone will ever be able to stand on an equal playing field in a competitive environment where all of the resources, the tools, the best schools, my kids are now in a position where they're applying for colleges and, and yes, because they're minorities, they have a couple small windows, but I think it's mythical to think that their, their window is as broad as, 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 as a white man's. Yeah. You know, so I think there's I think those are things that when you think about, I think our imagination needs to expand to start thinking of different ways of living, because it's not just, you know, this simple, you know, let's not be mean to black folks. So let's sit down and have conversations with black folks. It's it's white people imagining another way of living that that is not maybe not as competitive. Mm-hmm. That maybe is is a, is a is a way of living that welcomes people into the space and shares more and gives more. And thinks less of themselves, which is, I think, every religion has some sort of sure. <laughs> teaching on that in their ethos. I'm guessing, you know, and here's the thing: I, I don't think racism will always exist. It just will. Um, I wish it didn't, but it, it just will. I, I think part of the problem, and you can call it whatever it is, uh, part of you know, if you're a person of faith, that could be considered like part of the fall, part of sin nature, part of whatever. I think, you know, racism has been a thing for thousands of years, right? I mean, they're in Jew- old Jewish culture, whatever. I mean, it just has. To. I do think that it's possible to make it less of an issue, but, you know, there's always going to be some dude and I'm going to say a state and offend half the people who live in that state, but some <laughs> some dude in, you know, some place that... So the, the idea of curing it or, or, or ridding it might might be... Um, one of my favorite things, and I'm sure, you know, this isn't funny, but but it kind of is because I'm sure you've heard this. You know, it always cracks me up when someone says, I'm not racist, but, and then they proceed to say something racist. You know, I mean, this this idea, you know, I, you know I'm, 
it, it's almost like we're we're trying to we're trying to defend this thing that we know is wrong, but yet there's this feeling that we have that um, kind of backs that up. So my, my I guess my last question, and you kind of alluded to this already in your in your statement before, um, not that we're looking towards utopia, nirvana, whatever, but what are you fighting so hard for? And in your mind, like what kind of world do you picture? Like I know that we, we've, we've, we've been in this place where we can, again, we, we talked at length about just the idea and understanding the, the, the playing field is not equal, right? With your podcast and with your books and with your conversations, um, I've got to believe that there's a part of you that believes that we can change because I don't see you as someone that just is bitching for the sake of somebody listening to you. Mm-hmm. Like I, yeah, I've, I've got to believe that there's part of you that believes that we can be different, that we can change. So what, what is it that you're fighting for? Um, and do you think we can get there? Well, man, that's a great, that's a great question. And, and I would say that I don't think that I will see the end of racism in my lifetime. Yeah. I think I'll be dead and there'll still be racist people running around. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, what I want to do is move the ball forward for my children, for mm-hmm. my children's children. Um, and I think every, for every religion I'm aware of, certainly ancient religion, had this idea of a utopian future where the divine God, the universe, whatever, whatever you call it in your space, mm-hmm. um, was going to make things right, where the world would be a place where, uh, and I, I think it's Isaiah, where it talks about like a, 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 a baby would put their hand on the hole of a snake and the snake wouldn't bite. Sure. You know, like a, a world where there's just this, there's this sense of, of a connectedness, what the Jewish people called shalom, which was this connection between all living creatures with everything on the planet, the trees and the mountains and the oceans and the birds and all the animals and all of us as humans living in this space together without the brokenness that comes from violence and injustice and anger and uh, racism and hatred and all, you name it, any of those things that have plagued mankind since the beginning. Um, That is something that I believe in. I believe that that day will come. I do think it's beyond our control, but I don't think that means that I do nothing. I think it means that I do my part to, to try to emulate that as best I can in the world that I live in. So the world I live in is dark and it's full of situations that happen, like what happened in Dallas not too long ago mm-hmm. with Tatiana Jefferson, where a um, white police officer fired a shot through her window and killed her in front of her eight-year-old nephew. Mm-hmm. Um, that stuff happens. And uh, I would like to see less and less of that stuff happen. And I think that if more and more people can, the young, more and more parents can teach their kids that black people aren't bad people, then if those kids grow up to be police officers, maybe they won't shoot first and ask mm-hmm. questions sure. second. Um, or if those kids, those kids grow up to be politicians uh, or, or grow up to be pastors or grow up to be doctors, whatever they grow up to be, that their worldview won't be one where uh, there's this construct of whiteness that determines what's just, what's fair, what's professional, 
what what does professional hair look like? What does professional mm-hmm. dress look like? Mm-hmm. But all of, all of those things won't be determined by whiteness, but they'll be determined by our collective sense of humanity and respect for each other's cultures and backgrounds and ethnicities. Um, I think that's what I'm striving for. Is that you know utopian future? Sure. But again, I know I won't reach it. And and there's a part of me that is creative enough. I'm, I'm a Enneagram seven for whatever anybody that knows what that means. Um, I'm a three. I, I, <laughs> Okay. All right. So, so, so I'm just like, I, I believe in the adventure of morality and divinity. Mm. I believe it's wilder and more mysterious than I, you and I grew up mm. believing that it was. It was like very simple and, and, and elementary and basic. But I believe it's so much more complex, so much more wild, so much more fierce than I ever imagined. And so to me, I'm fully committed to what it, that journey, where it takes me. And I think it's going to take all of us to a place of peace. That again, I do think it's beyond our reach. I think mm-hmm. it's divine, but I think we can try to get there. Yeah, it's kind of like um, that that story that I, I remember. I'm going to butcher the crap out of this because I just don't remember the details correctly. But it's about you know that kid that was throwing all these starfish into the water, and uh, the, there's like thousands of them, and somebody walks by and and says, uh, you know, there's no way that you're going to be able to save all of them, and and the kid says something along the lines of, yeah, but I saved this one, or you know, I, yeah. I again, I don't. I, and so it's like you, yeah. you, you look forward and you're like, man, that was just – I did a terrible job of sharing that story, by the way. Um, it, 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 I think we all got it, though. I yeah, got it. And good. I've never heard this story before, so I got it. I'm you know what? I'm, I'm just an epic communicator, and I hate that word. <laughs> um, so last thing I want to just kind of bring to it is if, if people are listening to this and they're like, man, they really appreciate what you're saying, and they want to join the discussion, join the conversation – um, learn more, educate themselves, and just maybe find themselves following um, the journey of someone else. I, I think people like me, one of the mm. things that has been best for me over the last couple of years is just honestly being someone that's followed you, um, mm. commented on your on your posts and listened to your podcasts and read your blogs. Um, for someone like me who maybe just wants to learn more um how do they follow you how do they find you and uh how do they join the conversation that you're initiating yeah man thanks for um again thanks for having me on on Mm -hmm. your podcast and and for asking that question if anybody wants to stay connected um man i I have cory evan dot cory dot com um that's cory with an e yeah with an e the right spelling absolutely a c-o-r-e-y yeah cory evan leak dot um, com Corey Evan League on Facebook. Um, I'm on Instagram, uh, and of course the podcast is called Existential, um, which you know people could look up what it meant. I just you know I kind of thought I wanted to name the podcast something that captures what I'm talking about, but also is mysterious enough for people to go like what what is that? And I hope that doesn't backfire because no one knows what it is. Yeah, but that is <laughs> that is the name of the podcast. It is Existential, and you can find me on Twitter. And uh, Instagram, Facebook. Well, I just want to encourage everybody to to go ahead and uh, give Corey a follow and, and listen to the Existential podcast. And uh, I think it's just such an important thing to to educate yourself, to be better, um, and to join the fight. And if you're not someone that believes uh, that that there is such a thing as racism, believe that there is such a thing as as uh, white privilege, um, I, I just encourage you to join the fight and join the fight for a better world. I think we all want a place where people have a fair chance. We all want a place that 
people are better at empathy and learning. And I just encourage everyone listening to look inside and say, what can I do different? What can I do better um, to really make this world truly a better place? So Corey, thanks for your time. Thanks for your honesty and your vulnerability. And um, let's go make the world better, man. Appreciate your time. Let's do it, man. Thanks. Yep. Hey, guys, thanks for listening. This has been the Chasing Better Podcast, episode four with Corey Leak. And uh, if you like this or if you want to hear more, uh, I encourage you to go to uh, coreybaker.us. You can subscribe for my blog. You can search for the Corey Baker or Chasing Better Podcast. And obviously, my book, Chasing Better, is available on Amazon if you'd like to learn more about me. Have a good one, everybody.